Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 20th, 2023. Uh, last year, we did an interesting show with a man called Josiah Ober. Um, on what the ancient Greeks can teach us about the value of rationality in our age of hostility towards reason and science, or at least some people's hostility. This was came out of a book that uh, Ober brought out last year, The Rise and Fall of Classical Greece. What's interesting about Ober, he's a scholar at Stanford University, just down the peninsula from where I am in San Francisco. Uh, he has dual appointments. He's both has a seat or a place at the table uh, in the Department of Political Science and also uh, in the Department of Classics. So he looks at things in an interesting, innovative way. And he has a new book out, which he's co-authored with Brooke Manville called The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. We're going to get Brooke on the show later this week. Uh, and so we will continue this discussion. But this is a book which, in contrast to a lot of the other conversations we've had recently, is cautiously optimistic about democracy and its future in, in, in the United States of the 2020s. Uh, and I'm thrilled that uh, Josiah Ober, who uh, otherwise answers to Josh, is uh, joining us again. Uh, he's not in Palo Alto at the moment. He's in his other home in Montana. So, Josh, congratulations on the new book, The Civic Bargain. It's out this week. Are you cautiously optimistic, Josh, about the future of democracy? I think it's imperative that we be, um, because if we all become too pessimistic, uh, then uh, we'll simply give up. Um, and at that point, um, uh, democracy becomes impossible. So democracy has always been an experiment. Um, the experiment sometimes is running well, and sometimes it seems to be running badly. Um, there have been remarkable challenges for every viable democracy in history. So I think that until democracy has died, until it has been overthrown, it behooves us to ask, how is it that democracy can survive? And that's really what the book is about, um, a series of historical cases and what enabled um, for at least particularly well-known, well-documented democracies to survive for a very long time. It doesn't mean that we should be overly optimistic. It doesn't mean we should be Pollyanna-ish and say... No Pollyannas on this show, Josh. That's one thing <laughs> I, I do not allow are Pollyannas. None of them are invited. So you talked about these four examples um, yeah. from democracy's history. Classical Athens, Republican Rome, Great Britain's constitutional monarchy and America's founding. I want to talk about the, the last two with uh, Brooke when he comes on the show on, on Friday. But let's talk to you about classical Athens and Republican mm -hmm. Rome. I mean, I, I know you wrote the book together, so I'm sure you contributed to the later chapters. But I'm guessing that you a lot of the book uh, on, mm -hmm. on the Greek and the Roman stuff comes from you. The obvious response yeah. And you'll get this all the time, Josh, so I'll be the first to do it, or certainly not the last, is why are you writing, especially about Rome, but even classical Greece, where they had slavery, where women had no vote, where no one really had no vote? What was democratic about 
classical Greece or Rome for that matter? Yeah, so we can define democracy in a lot of different ways. Um, it famously has been defined in many different ways and an essentially contested concept, of some have said. If we define democracy as what we have now um, in the 21st century or say um, have had since the middle of the 20th century, then we really give up on any possibility of understanding how self-government by citizens has operated through history. So Brooke and I took a very minimalist definition of democracy, and that is as self-government by citizens who refuse to have a boss by anybody but themselves. Now, the citizen body has to be in some ways large, beyond face-to-face. -face. It has to be in some ways diverse, not everybody just being in the same social condition as everyone else. But to say that only democracies that include everyone that we contemporarily include as obvious candidates for citizens would once again just be to cut off um, the possibility of learning anything from history. So that's, a, I think, a fair response. For better or worse, not everybody is a citizen, in the, in, in, certainly in classical Greece or, or, or Rome. Uh, the, the, the book is called The Civic Bargain. In our last conversation, we talked uh, a kind of, maybe I'm vulgarizing your philosophy, but uh, would it be fair to, to call you a, a proponent of, of communitarian rational choice thinking? Yeah, communitarian, I, I'm a little worried about because it's such a big tent and there are or, some or civic rational yes. choice. Civic rational choice I'm happy with, yes. So I think that although there are obviously non-rational elements um, for every political system, um, uh, that emotion, um, passion, uh, preference um, for one's own side is inevitable uh, in politics and certainly in democratic politics. Still in all, if we don't have some core conception of reason, of being able to reason together in order to achieve ends that we together regard as necessary, worthy of achieving, then we've really given it up. So without the ability to give reasons and take reasons, to listen to your side of things and you listen to mine, and at least I take on board what your reasons are and you take on board what my reasons are, it's really not possible to imagine um, how a democracy is going to function. So you are intimately connecting your definition of reason with self-government and citizenship. In your historiographical narrative of, of the world, were the Greeks the first to deploy reason? Were they the ones who invented reason? Well, I think that at least there's one story one can tell about the invention of at least practical reason, um, the kind of reason that is necessary, Aristotle thought anyway, and I think he's right, for the sort of lives together that are based on something other than a strict hierarchy, other than some boss telling us what to do. 
So uh, uh, Greece is the first community that we can document the use of that kind of reason in politics over time um, in human history. Now that doesn't mean the Greeks were the first to use reason. It doesn't even mean that they discovered it, um, but it does mean that's the first time we can really look back and investigate based on really fairly substantial bodies of evidence, how it actually worked. Are you then in, in your own way, reinventing or reinterpreting the notion of Western civilization in the context of reason and distinguishing the Greece or Rome of antiquity from every other world of the, the Visigoths of African and Middle Eastern and Chinese history? Yeah, I think that it's actually a mistake to make too strict a division. Um, uh, we certainly know that there are arguments being made about instrumental rationality, that is how people reason from means to ends and how you gain your ends through reasoning back and um, choosing the best available option based on available information, based on what you believe other people believe and what they prefer. So there, that kind of reasoning we see um, certainly um, in early Chinese traditions. Um, we see that in the early Indian tradition. Um, I think if we knew more about other societies, we'd probably see that they had that capacity to use reason in that sense. Once again, um, the idea that reason being used in that sense could be something that was generalized um, across a large, diverse citizenship, um, citizens who were not all wealthy, who were not all descended from the gods, um, who didn't have a special relationship um, uh, with the divine order, that ordinary people um, have the capacity together um, to choose well enough um, to run their own affairs, that we don't see at scale, or at least we don't have it documented at scale um, before um, the ancient Greeks. So starting there makes some sense to me. Um, if it, somebody were to um, uh, tell me uh, some uh, tomorrow that a magnificent trove of new documents has come up um, uh, from someplace far from Greece and um, uh, at the same time or earlier than Greece, it demonstrates that um, democracy um, in the way I'm defining it was exemplified there, I'd be delighted. Um, I don't have any um, need to say that the Greeks were, you know, the source and the origin of everything. Um, but they are um, the earliest one that is uh, uh, at this point um, uh, well documented. Yeah, I'm guessing that many of your colleagues in and out of Stanford wouldn't agree in other departments, but that's another issue. Um, your book is called The Civic Bargain. Um, so it involves the idea, I think, of compromise in terms of democracy. I know that you and Brooke, you've been friends for years and you share mm -hmm. a common appreciation for Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Speaking of classical Greece, Josh, I'm guessing that, that this is an Aristotelian rather than a Platonic civic bargain. After all, Plato seemed most unwilling to bargain anything when it came to politics. He was the idealist. And maybe Socrates is somehow caught between Aristotle and Plato. Is there any truth in that? 
Yeah, I wish I knew what Socrates really When I uh, So do I. We all wish. Maybe you even didn't know himself. <laughs> exactly. That's great, yeah. But certainly between Plato and Aristotle, you're right. Yeah. Uh, Plato, I think, believed that um, very sincerely, that the best form of government would be um, an enlightened elite, um, uh, philosopher kings and queens. Um, uh, he uh, was quite willing to believe that there could be philosopher queens as well. And if they were just as fully enlightened, they ought to be part of the ruling group. But he certainly um, uh, did not uh, suppose that the kind of excellence that he imagined was humanly possible and indeed ought to be the end of human social organization would be possible within a democracy. Aristotle, I think, was quite different. Uh, he was, once again, not a Democrat even by an Athenian standard, but he certainly did think that the best form of achievable human political organization was one in which citizens ruled and were ruled over in turns. Uh, and he certainly imagined a body of citizens that was considerably larger um, and probably in some ways more diverse than um, Plato's uh, philosopher kings. So it's possible to get a kind of a democracy from Aristotle's thought, um, even though that's not really the terms in which he put it. Yeah, Plato has often been described as the the, the, the beginnings of authoritarian thinking, whether it's the authoritarianism of the right or the left, whereas Aristotle has often been interpreted as the the inventor of the idea of politics, or at least of the mm -hmm. polis. Hannah Arendt wrote about this. Mm -hmm. uh, what were the institutions in terms of this civic bargain that uh, existed in classical Greece that Aristotle in particular was able to articulate? Was it this idea of the polis, this space where citizens met to discuss their affairs? Yeah, so the polis is where we begin. Um, and the idea of a bounded territory um, that was uh, the common possession of a people who lived in that bounded territory centered on some kind of an urban area um, uh, and uh, having a common fate, um, a shared fate, uh, uh, is uh, where we begin. Uh, but the polis was not necessarily democratic. Um, it was uh, perfectly possible to have an oligarchic polis, and indeed all the, er all the early polis that we know about are aristocratic or oligarchic. Um, so uh, the question then is, how does this polis system, um, starting out with you know, some group of people with a shared fate, end up in a system that says, we don't want a boss. Um, we, the people, we, the citizens, the adult males, um, uh, will uh, run ourselves um, rather than be told what to do by someone else. And that really does um, begin with um, a political bargain um, that really antedates the civic bargain that creates and sustains democracy. And that political bargain, um, uh, at least the first one we have in really well-documented, was struck um, at the very beginning of the 6th century BC by the mediator Solon, who basically cuts a deal um, or arranges a deal between the elite wealthy Athenians and the ordinary struggling impoverished Athenians that prevents a civil war. Um, basically what happens is the 
civil war was about to break out. Both sides recognized that it could be a disaster for their their shared thing, their their polis. Um, if uh, it turned out to be um, a long and bloody civil war, and so each side agreed that Solon could mediate between them, uh, and he came up with a bargain um, in which the poor got something, the rich got something, neither side got all that they wanted, and yet they were able to get enough, each side, to go on together um, to uh, uh, continue their, their lives together. That created the preconditions um, in which then a breakthrough to full democracy was eventually possible. Your interpretation then of human nature is one of self-interest. That's, I don't know if it's Hobbesian or Lockean, but it's certainly rooted yeah. in the notion that to make sense of how we behave, we pursue our own interests. And so for you, democracy, the civic bargain, self-government requires a degree of, of horse trading. It's a, it's a Madisonian interpretation, both of politics and human nature. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. I mean, the um, key thing to keep in mind is that self-interest doesn't mean I reduce my interests or my preferences to my personal individual self. Um, really, only psychopaths, I think, um, uh, reduce what they care about um, to just their individual selves. Most of us have an extended self, uh, family, um, the community. Are you suggesting Donald Trump is a psychopath? Well, um, I, it's a whole nother conversation, but I think... Uh, I don't want to throw it. I, I apologize, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> by that standard, probably, yes. Um, uh, at any rate, um, uh, the, uh, uh, but I think, the, I think the, the, the core idea that each of us um, has some self, some extended conception of self that uh, uh, we do seek to further the interest of, uh, is, uh, is key to that. Um, now, in an ideal world, um, uh, for an ideal politics, um, uh, we might say that the self we're trying to advance would be the entire community, not sort of pure communitarian conception. Um, but that's never true. Um, it's never the whole community um, that uh, each of us is trying to pursue. We always have some kind of a group, um, call it a faction, um, some kind of a group that is less than the entire community, the entire nation. And that's what that means that we have to negotiate with others who have different interests, um, who have different goals. Um, uh, that is really what then comes down to the necessity of making bargains um, for uh, so it's democracy. A, it's, it's a reasonable interpretation of reason. We are talking with Josiah Ober, the co-author of a very interesting new book, which is cautiously optimistic about the future of democracy, not just um, in the United States, but around the world in the 21st century, uh, built around self-government by citizens and might even conceivably, I guess, include China. Um, we're going to take a short break. And after the break, I want to talk about Rome and what Rome helps us make sense of in in terms of the civic bargain. So we're going to take a short break. I'm going to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. And we'll be back with Josiah Ober uh, in a couple of seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Josiah Ober, who um, holds two positions at Stanford University. He's a classicist and a political scientist. He's the co-author of a very interesting new book um, called The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives, Four Lessons from History, from Classical Greece, from Rome, Classical Rome, and uh, 18th century England and 19th century America. His co-author, Brooke Manville, is going to come on the show in a couple of days to talk about the modern examples. So let's move on, uh, Josh, to Rome. Um, What does Rome bring, so to speak, to the table that didn't exist in classical Athens, in classical Greece? Among the things that really makes Rome distinctive is a very expansive conception of citizenship. So the Roman system of republic begins once again with the rejection of the idea of a boss. This is once again our definition, our core definition of democracy is no boss. Uh, No Caesar. Maybe we should just say no no Caesar. (laughs) No Caesar. That's right. And of course, in the end, they got a Caesar and uh, uh, that's the end of the Republican experiment. Um, uh, But it took um, several hundred years for that to happen. Um, And the history of the Roman Republic, beginning with the expulsion of the last of the Roman kings and then developing through the early Republic, when there were very difficult bargaining, political bargains between elite Romans, that is the people who called themselves the patricians or the fathers, and the rest of the Romans, the plebeians, the everybody else. Uh, the early Republican period really um, uh, characterized by this fierce bargaining. Um, and yet this fierce bargaining ended up in each case with a compromise. Um, The patricians give up some of their power. The plebeians agree to stay in the shared enterprise that was the Republic. And this eventually develops into the period of the so-called Middle Republic, in which Rome has a very extensive citizenship uh, and yet um, uh, manages to rule itself um, by uh, uh, civic assemblies um, uh, and an advisory senate. You talked about Roman fathers. The concept of the male, of course, is very strong in Rome. And some nostalgists for Rome, including Mussolini, look back at that period and idealized it. We've already talked about the reality, for better or worse, that women were excluded from politics. Was there something mm. particularly masculine about the civic bargain in, in Rome, Josh? There was, insofar as the civic bargains that characterized um, all of our four cases um, were masculinist um, uh, up to a very late period. Of course, women didn't get uh, the vote in either the U.S. or um, the U.K. until um, uh, early in the 20th century. So uh, the notion that um, the 
politics um, is something that is, at least in the first instance, um, uh, done by men, uh, is a very common one. Um, and, uh, you know, once again, we now look back and think, you know, why was that? Uh, uh, why, why, why should that be the case? And we could talk about that. Um, but uh, uh, it is not, I think, distinctively a Roman or Greek um, or ancient conception um, that politics is a space for men. Um, uh, even if we look back on it now and say, um, that's an absurd way to think about it. There's horse trading, of course, for resources, uh, which drives, I think, part of the civic bargain. But what about the issue of war and peace? These were societies always on the brink of one kind of form of violence or another. It's littered throughout the history of the, the period from Thucydides' accounts onwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does the threat of violence inform your notion of the civic bargain? Of course, for Hobbes, who later came up with perhaps the most influential theory of democracy in his Leviathan, we're driven by fear of violence. Was there some truth to that in ancient Greece and Rome, even though these were, particularly Rome, were very violent societies? Yeah, so for Hobbes, um, the fear is absolutely endemic and that it ought to be um, something that we all take as primary, a recognition um, that we ought to fear one another um, in a state of nature, in a state of without authority. Therefore, Hobbes thought, you know, we need to create ourselves a kind of authority. The best sort of authority he thought would be a monarchical one, second best aristocratic, third best would be um, a democratic. Form of authority. But in any case, he thought that it had to be um, an absolute authority, um, had to be um, a lawless uh, sovereign, whether it was one man or a few. Or, which or, monopolized violence, which was the which foundation violence, of the, exactly. state, the modern state. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, uh, so he uh, absolutely despised the idea of a mixed government, of a government that in which you would actually have different um, uh, parts of the government, different agencies of the government, which would balance each other out. He thought that was a catastrophe. That was really the Roman idea. Um, the Romans were convinced that if you were to avoid having a single boss, you needed to divide the authority of government between an executive group, which would be um, the war leaders, um, the consuls, um, and then um, an advisory group um, that would exemplify, as it were, the wisdom of the society, the, the Senate, um, and then the people, um, uh, a democratic group, the uh, people uh, gathered in large citizen assemblies, um, and that each one of these elements of government would balance out the others. They couldn't um, operate without the other, um, uh, and that, at least according to the Greek historian Polybius, um, who wrote about the Roman um, uh, constitutional order, basically told the Romans um, what they were doing right, um, was, uh, was really the secret to Rome's success. It was the real secret to um, the way that the Romans were able to um, uh, carry on so well, extend their citizenship so widely, um, and as Polybius pointed out, um, take over most of the known world. So um, that was really a scandal for someone like Hobbes. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's the Madisonian version versus the Hobbesian yeah. one. Precisely right. Precisely so. And, yeah, but you're and also Madison. ironically arguing, and, and this would chill, I guess, the Jeffersonian side of the American 
uh, discourse that if you if you're Madisonian in your arrangements of the civic bargain, you can build an empire, which certainly would upset those against empire. Yeah, yeah, that's one of, I think, the things that really one needs to take on board in studying democracy is that it unleashes remarkable social energies. Um, when your society is not defined by the constant grinding opposition of um, elites versus uh, the many, um, when the elite and the many are on the same page um, and see themselves as part of a single entity, as, as a single enterprise, it becomes possible to do things that simply um, are very difficult to get done um, otherwise. And one of the things is, well, let's become more powerful. Let's expand. Let's take over other people. Let's take their stuff, um, uh, which uh, uh, does, in fact, happen um, uh, in democratic societies. It certainly it's does. And, it, and perhaps in an odd way, well, this explains, uh, Josh, the the contradictions, to use a euphemism, mm -hmm. of about American democracy and American power in the world, that they, they, they coexist, they're antithetical, and yet in your analysis, they kind of naturally go together. Well, yes, I mean, the whole notion that um, we the people will rule ourselves, and yet we the people are a bounded people. Um, we are, we determine, we ourselves, the citizens, determine who is to be among the citizens, that is, who has the authority um, to join together in self-government. Um, and it's never everybody. Um, so it is very characteristic of democracies um, that they extend out um, and impose their rule over people who are not citizens, leading then to really yeah, contradictions. Now, the Romans, um, for a long time, managed to figure out how to incorporate more and more of those people they conquered into the citizen body. Never all of them, but um, a lot of them. So that the Roman, citizen be, uh, Roman citizenship um, became radically extended and expanded um, uh, by the time of the Middle Republic, by the time of, say, the second century BC. So you're collapsing the idea of democracy and empire and colonialization well, in, an, in an odd kind of way. We talked about the polis as the central institution in classical Greece. What institutions did the Romans introduce into this civic bargain? How did they, did they have places, spaces? We all go to Italy and, and, and the, the Mediterranean mm -hmm. to look at Roman remains. What were the mm -hmm. old buildings? I was just in e Ephesus a couple yes. of months ago where there's spectacular yeah. Roman remains. Uh, what were they doing in these buildings to, yeah. to so, create a civic bargain? Yeah, so um, one of the um, very important Roman spaces um, was the forum, uh, was the central part of the city, um, uh, whether it was the city of Rome, the once the empire is established, an imperial capital, or of uh, any of the various other Roman cities. And the forum was really where politics took place, um, uh, where state officials could speak to and did speak to the people, um, uh, enunciate their vision for what should be the future. And at least in the Republican period then, urge the people 
um, to vote in the civic assemblies, which gathered in various other spaces um, uh, within the uh, Roman uh, city, uh, urged them then to, uh, to vote for whatever it was, war against the Carthaginians, um, or changing um, uh, something about the distribution um, of, the, of, uh, of wealth or, or taxation. Oh, it was the Roman version of Twitter. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, when you've got a uh, a world with is pre-technological in that sense, um, uh, it becomes very important, and this is true for Athens as well as for Rome, um, to have the right kind of relationship between speakers and audience, um, between those who are giving advice um, and those who are taking advice or considering advice and who will ultimately be um, voting um, and making the decision uh, about what the policy of the state will be. So that kind of relationship between speaker and audience has to be um, uh, quite uh, carefully maintained because if it goes off the rails, as we can see in various times in antiquity and various times in modernity, if uh, the speaker audience uh, uh, relationship um, goes wrong, you have pure demagoguery, um, and then you get um, democracy making terrible mistakes, and the experiment starts to um, uh, look like it's not working. I need me to tell you, uh, Josh, that the Romans and the Greeks were particularly experienced when it came comes to the the dangers and the damage associated with demagoguery. Let's fast forward. Uh, we're not going to deal with 18th century England or 19th century America. I'm going to leave that to Brooke when we talk uh, on Friday. But fast forward to the 2020s. You, mm -hmm. you, you noted at the beginning of our conversation that you were cautiously optimistic about the future of democracy in America and indeed in the West. What does your analysis of, of Rome and Greece tell us? What, what, why has that made you cautiously optimistic about self-government by citizens. The citizens these days uh, include everyone, uh, ex-slaves, women, uh, immigrants, uh, everybody, whether they own property or not. Why should we be cautiously optimistic? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. Um, one is that uh, the democracy tends to be, or has been, at least in some cases, remarkably resilient, um, capable of dealing with um, the challenges of demagoguery, um, even challenges of civil war um, in all of the four cases we study in Athens, um, in Rome, in the UK, in the US, there were periods of civil war. Um, those were survived, got past um, the bargain, um, reestablished um, on somewhat different grounds. Um, uh, so I think the, um, the idea that because democracy is running into um, uh, difficulties today in various countries, that that's the end, that we're about to crash on the, on the reef, um, is not a sure thing. Um, uh, resilience is a characteristic of at least some democracies. And the other thing is uh, uh, our capacity to educate ourselves. I think that democracy has always depended on the education of citizens and the education of citizens by citizens. Um, uh, that doesn't have to be formal education, although it can be. It can include what happens in universities and in um, uh, primary schools. But it also has to um, 
include what we um, do uh, among ourselves. Um, exactly what we're, you and I are doing right now, Andrew, is trying to mm-hmm. educate ourselves and others about what we see as the essentials of what it takes um, uh, to keep this civic bargain going, to keep this um, uh, world in which um, uh, we don't have to have a single boss, a Caesar, um, telling us what to do um, alive. So and that is one again been characteristic um, of democracies is they've found ways and they found new ways um, for citizens to educate one another. We can miseducate one another, we can mislead one another, but you know, once again, things like your program, um, I think suggest no, you're being that... too kind, Josh. I'm sure you tell all the girls that. <laughs> well, it's a, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think you were doing something like that. I will say. You know, it comes to mind that one of I never really thought about Rome as a model for democracy, but thinking about your argument, one thing that we we in America can learn from the 2020s is the ability for patricians and plebeians to talk to one another. It seems in America that the patricians, people like you and I, the coastal elites and the plebeians, the people of the hinterland, they've lost the ability to talk to one another. How did the Romans do it? How did plebeians and patricians acknowledge who they were, recognize who they were, and still were able to talk to one another without loathing each other and denying their essential humanity? Yeah, so this goes back to, I think, one of the key institutional features um, that successful democracies um, use, and here treating Rome as a kind of democracy. And that is um, institutions that mix up the citizens, that bring together, um, uh, as it were, elites with non-elites. So the military um, is mm. one of those uh, institutions. Very right, right, right. Even the most elite uh, Roman young boys had to go and do their military service. The national um, service. That's that's exactly Gosh. right. So, We've done uh, lots, of, lots of shows on... The civic value of all that. Yeah, so that is that's certainly one part of it, and that gets us back to the relationship between um, the threat of uh, uh, war, uh, the, um, the the need for armed forces, um, forces um, a democracy to do what it can do best, and that is make use of its full um, uh, citizenship. But that requires that elites and Ordinary people are together in the ranks, um, uh, serving towards this common end of it, um, at least uh, uh, state security. Uh, so there are other kinds of um, uh, cultural uh, features of uh, democratic societies um, uh, that bring together um, ordinary and elite citizens. The Athenians had a whole um, set of these, so um, in different ways did the Romans. I think that's what we begin to lose, um, uh, is that we've begun to lose the ways in which um, uh, people from different parts of the country, different um, uh, educational um, uh, levels and so on, see themselves as fellow citizens doing something importantly together. Together. Um, and when we don't do things together, we begin to see one another um, as other, as strange, right. as and difficult. It, 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 it strikes me in America, 
the two problems is that the patricians won't acknowledge that they're patricians mm -hmm. and the plebeians won't acknowledge that they're plebeians right that's a a the, the case is um yeah i mean and and that could be seen as a strength, right? I mean, you imagine if you had the right institutions to bring us together, the um, patricians say, of course, we're ordinary folks. The um, plebeians say, of course, we're just as good as you. Um, that would make the possibility for, you know, actually uh, 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 doing things together. Um, or at least it would create the possibility of getting together and bargaining um, with one another as, you know, more or less equals. We can do this. But, uh, uh, but instead, uh, uh, we are living in these sort of separate worlds. Um, uh, and it's, uh, we don't um, perhaps uh, understand the things that do divide us, class, for example, adequately. Uh, we don't really take that on board, simply the ancients did. Um, uh, but we also um, uh, failed to recognize that um, we actually do need to find ways to um, uh, negotiate with one another if we're going to continue on in this common enterprise that we call democracy. And unless we can really find ways um, to educate one another, um, through actual practice to doing things together, um, you know, that, 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 that's what will um, uh, really make things, make the experiment much more problematic.